0: Sometimes the beauty of Shakespeare's poetry takes your breath away. In the case of today's guest, Shakespeare gave him his breath back. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger director. You may recognize actor Michael Patrick Thornton from his roles on TV series like Private Practice and The Good Doctor. 20 years ago, Thornton had just started out his acting career when he suffered two spinal strokes that nearly ended his life. Thornton survived, but the strokes took away his ability to breathe and speak. A speech therapist helped Thornton find his way back to breath control by reciting Shakespeare. Since then, Thornton co-founded The Gift Theatre in Chicago, where he serves as artistic director. He's played Iago at The Gift and Richard III in a co-production with Steppenwolf Theatre. He appeared on Broadway in Sam Gold's 2022 production of Macbeth, starring Daniel Craig, and in the Tony-nominated production of A Doll's House earlier this year. Here's Michael Patrick Thornton in conversation with Barbara Bogate.
1: You have such a long association with Shakespeare. Why don't you tell me about your first encounter?
2: I do remember wandering the stacks of what seemed like, you know, a large library back then and and stumbling around to the Shakespeare section. And it was the old, I believe, Signet Classics editions, and they were all dog-eared. And I remember opening it up and looking at the words and knowing, okay, I know this is English and I know Shakespeare's hard. And, you know, people say, you know, it's hard to understand and you're smart if you get it, you know, and it just felt like there was a really cool universe hiding behind these pages. If only you could kind of unlock the language. If if only you, you knew the code to get past it. And I was sort of spellbound by it, and started reading as much as I could. And I don't think I grasped you know much of it uh, at all. And then when we got into uh, to high school, I had some great teachers that uh, that that taught Shakespeare very wonderfully mike peterson being one of them and and said hey look there's this contest called the national shakespeare uh, festival you should audition for it and went down to the good the old goodman theater and there's like 500 young adults from illinois competing for to be the person from illinois to go compete in new york and and i got it that was my first time going to new york was going to compete uh, to do one sonnet and then one monologue uh, with 49 other very dorky, uh, precocious young adults.
1: What monologue did you do and what sonnet? I,
2: di- I, I did sonnet, I believe it's sonnet 17, who will believe my verse in time to come, the last of the procreation sonnets, if I remember correctly. And uh, and then I did Iago's, uh, oh sir content you, I follow him to serve my turn upon him. And um, my wife and I were just rolling through, uh, she was walking, I was rolling, cause I use a wheelchair. Um, through Lincoln Center in, in New York, and just like stopped dead in my tracks, and I said, "This is kind of where it all started." And th- this is after having done my Broadway debut last year was in Macbeth, and just being like, "Wow, this is just a really cool full, full circle moment." Like I remember being downstairs in the bowels of the Lincoln Center, almost ready to throw up, you know, so nervous. Not even know if I could remember what the first word is, let alone a line, and uh, and then flash forward and 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 here you are now doing your second Broadway show. It's just kind of wild. Okay,
1: so how did you get from, uh, from all of that, this is what sounds like an incredible education, to, to acting?
2: There was no theater program uh, in high school, um, at my high school, um, so I did it at the, uh, the girls' school down the road, um, which, uh, which was great. I went to all boys school today. Yeah, it was nice. My buddy Rob was like, "What are you doing? Doing these park district shows? Come over here!" Like, you know, there's two guys in every musical. It's great. And yeah, I competed in the Shakespeare contest and then went to Iowa. And then uh, in in Iowa, really did an accelerated program. So my second year at the University of Iowa was through a program called Literature, Science, and the Arts, which was basically independent studies um, with the professors. And then every class I took was either a MFA level or PhD candidate level class in creative writing, philosophy, um, theater, and did Midsummer Night's Dream and *Tom Talbert's Acadia and was just uh, working, working, working constantly. And um, the director of theater, Alan McVeigh, kind of had a conference with my, my family and said, you know, I think Mike's outgrown the program and um, the sort of options that were unveiled were he can go for Juilliard, he can go for Princeton, or what if in his third year, he went to a major city, goes home to Chicago or New York or LA, tries to make it, you know, um, get the equity card, get the SAG card, and, and then see how that goes. And so I left, I left after two years, and it really was one of the, the best and most defining decisions I ever made in my life because Little beknownst to me and my family, of course, soon after I left in 2000, I would only have three years to really try to make it before I got very sick.
1: Um, so things were going very well, and then in 2003, everything changed for you. So what, why don't you tell us what happened?
2: Well, um, on St. Patrick's Day of 2003, after uh, a reasonable day of reverie um, compared to previous years, On our way home in my friend John's car, I felt a terrible pain in my neck. And within a half hour, I was on life support. Um, I was intubated. I was in a medically induced coma for five days, I believe. I woke up to a priest giving me my last rites and uh, started to make a tremendous recovery all four limbs moving, could, a, could do some standing independently from my hospital bed, was transferred downtown to RIC, um, the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago, which is now called the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Uh, made a great recovery there. And then, you know, uh, a couple weeks later, whatever it was, spinal stroke, I had another one. And that one didn't have the decency to put me out all the way. Um, I wasn't, I was awake, but it felt like I was breathing out of a coffee stir. And uh, my diaphragm didn't know when I would run out of oxygen, so all of a sudden I had to learn how to speak again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Wait, 20, but... 24 years old and just had my equity card. <laughs> um,
1: you know how everyone tells you when, you when you have a loved one in a coma that you should talk to them because they, they can hear, because hearing is last mm. uh, sense to go. So could you hear your family and friends talking to you?
2: I could, um, and I call that period the dark ballroom of the soul, because what it feels like is picture yourself in a very large party room of all the chairs on the periphery where there would be a party, and then all of a sudden like the lights go out, and you know that the room is cavernous, and you know that, okay, there's probably 40 steps to get to that wall, and I think the door was behind me, but you have no really sense of orientation anymore, and it feels very large and lonely and cold. And the the guests that you were talking to now are kind of outside the big heavy doors and all you can kind of capture is like their murmurings. Um, and then to further complicate that sense of isolation, I think most of us kind of go through life thinking like, okay, I have a body and then I have a conscience and maybe I have a soul, whatever that is. And so whatever that was like the soul or the conscience the piece of you that's aware that it's aware the watcher like if that was let's say a balloon inside you know my skeleton that balloon was now like 30 feet in that dark ballroom above my body still tethered to my body so you had this dual realization while in the dark that your body was in serious trouble because i could hear the sound of the uh, ventilator, which remains to this day, the worst sound in the world. And so you'd hear that and you knew that between that in that moment of rest, that silence, that everything hung in the balance, your whole life hung in the balance. And the breadcrumb trail that I found, that I followed out of that dark ballroom of the soul wasn't i need to wake up because of my family or i need to wake up because i want to be a father one day or i want to wake up because i want to marry my girlfriend the thing that i followed out of that dark ballroom of the soul was i need to get out of this coma because i need to be an actor again and since then i've been unburdened by that sense of questioning that imposters thing that we all go through, I think, at different points in our life. And, and that's a miraculous gift as well, to know for sure, mm, yeah, for whatever reason, this is the thing that I'm built to do.
1: Wow. Um, okay, so so you did. You pulled your whatever. You came out of the, the coma, and your condition, you said, what was you, you had to learn to speak again. Could you speak? Could you speak? or could you not speak intelligibly, well, I, I, or what was your condition? Yeah,
2: well, the first time, the coma followed the first incident, and uh, I could speak, and then the second recurrence was the the devastating one to my ability to speak, which was, it devastated my ability to project. It, de- um, it wasn't in so much... Um, when we think of strokes and speech therapy, we think of cognitive, right? We think of like not being able to say the words. That was never the issue. The issue was my diaphragm, not really knowing how much gas was left in the tank so that I would get halfway through a sentence and just pass out. Cause I would start a sentence without remembering to inhale. Um, so I had a, a wonderful speech therapist and she was like, you know, what do you love? What literature do you love? And I was like, well, I love Shakespeare. And so she rented out um, their theater, which is where they would give you know medical presentations, really. And I remember sitting inside that little room and trying to do uh, the sonnet that I'd done when I was in high school, and trying to do Iago and getting through you know about two sentences and almost passing out, and and gradually, gradually, gradually. We kept upping the ante, and um, we did a day trip. And if I remember correctly, she had contacted Steppenwolf and uh, got me on their main stage. And just being like, "Oh my God, how am I gonna, how am I gonna fill this room?" You know. And um, she just kept moving the goalpost. And um, she's an extraordinary, extraordinary speech therapist, Laura Henkes Molinaro.
1: Okay, I'm interested in your breathing and Shakespeare. What do you think? I mean, maybe it could have been anything, but w- do you think it was something about Shakespeare and iambic pentameter that helped you recover?
2: I think so. I mean, I don't think I knew that then. It would have been interesting, you know, if had I started with Beckett or, or Pinter or, or some other, you know, playwright who has a different kind of uh, internal syntax cadence. Um would I have been able to make uh, a recovery as quickly? Because Shakespeare sentences can go on quite a bit.
1: Was there, a, which speech in particular did you, did you practice then in therapy?
2: Oh, sir, content you, I follow him to serve my turn upon him. We cannot all be masters, nor all masters cannot be truly followed. You shall mark many a duteous and knee-crooking knave that doting on his own obsequious bondage wears out his time, much like his master's ass for naught. But provender and when he's old cashiered whip me such honest knaves others there are who trimmed in forms and visages of duty keep yet their hearts attending on themselves and throwing but shows of service upon their lords do well thrive by them these fellows have some soul and such a one do i profess myself for sir it is as sure as you are roderigo the more why then i would not be a iago in following him I follow but myself. Heaven is my judge. Not I for love and duty, but seeming so for my peculiar end. For when my outward action doth complement the native act and figure of my heart in complement extern, tis not long after, but I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for daws to peck at. I am not what I am.
1: I am not what I am. Was that the one you did when you were a kid? Or why that one?
2: Yeah. That was the one I did in high school. That was the one I did at uh, the Lincoln Center. and It's just the most readily available. That and the the good old procreation sonnet.
1: And did that one particularly speak to you at this time?
2: I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, I, I think I can kind of Monday morning quarterback it and try to unpack the psychology of here you are in the most powerless moment of your life with people helping you bathe and dress. And so it makes sense to me that the text that one would choose in that scenario would be this master villain confiding his, you know, plan to, to somebody, a text that makes you feel powerful, a text that makes you feel in control, and a text that makes you feel like you're going to get revenge on a world that has wronged you.
1: You performed Iago.
2: I did at the Gift.
1: Yeah, what year?
2: 2014, directed by Jonathan Berry. Wonderful production. Kareem Bandili played Othello.
1: Ah, when you were performing that role, can you pick out any lines or any uh, insights that you had into the into the role that that drew on on that? meaning of that, of, of Iago and that, those, those words for you at at the time when you were rehabilitating?
2: I think, you know, so much of the recovery was uncertain and, you know, you would get, I have what's called, I'm, I'm an incomplete quadriplegic which is a perfectionist. You know, I really hate that terminology cuz I'd like to be complete in everything. So an incomplete quadriplegic just means that you have you have damage to all four of your limbs and that the incomplete part means that the spinal cord has had some damage but it's not severed, it's not it's not cut, you know. And so that's sort of the good news in some ways because the, incomplete quadruple some you know some walk with a cane. And so you know, the medical staff couldn't really say, well, this is where we think you'll be in six months. And you would get to these terrifying moments that they would call plateaus where you wouldn't really have progress for a couple of weeks and you would think, well, is this the rest of my life? And then you would just keep working, and keep working, had these breakthroughs, which is all to say that in recovery, like I really had to learn to be okay with the unknown while still driving like a madman towards a goal and i think a lot of that is applicable to iago which is to say that this isn't richard iii who i've played like iago is more of a an improviser you know he he he, he is chaos and he's, punches. He, yeah. he, he rolls with it and you know and and in an uncertain world he's going to cause some more uncertainty and let's see where let's see what that does you know and that's. That, I think, is a skill that anybody in uh, a rehabilitative setting learns because you're just kind of going out into that hurricane with your umbrella and, you know, trying to get to safety.
1: I want to talk about Richard III in a second, but uh, I I do wonder how the day-to-day reality of being an actor uh, struck you when you did go back to work. And you went back to work really fast after your second stroke. It sounds like you were... I read somewhere you were directing uh, "Language of Angels," the play, and you were holding auditions while you were still an in <laughs> inpatient.
2: You—that's <were laughs> correct. That's correct. You were we determined. People. We, I know these uh, these poor actors showing up to RAC with their headshot and resume, going, "Where am I right now? <laughs> um, what theater is this?" <laughs> um, I didn't get back on stage as an actor until 2006 in a one-person show called The Good Thief by Connor McPherson.
1: That's three years, but you were auditioning, I imagine. And auditioning, I mean, you show up in all these weird places when you're an actor to audition. Sometimes they are offices or random floors of high-rises. That was my experience in New York City as a voice actor. So just physically, I imagine that must have been hard for you in a wheelchair.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you've ever seen, like, um, you know, these towns they build when they when they shoot a movie, whether it's a Western or something and you see the front and it's all highly detailed. It's like the saloon or like the old grocers, you know, but then you just kind of, you know, you go around the back and you realize it's all just two by fours and struts. Like that is sort of what the world felt like because all these places that I used to you know, enter to audition, like, you know, uh, casting offices and whatnot, I literally couldn't go through the front doors anymore because there were steps. And so I had to go around the back. And the back world of these places, which was a world of alleys and a world of disgusting uh, freight elevators that had garbage bags, leaking hot soda on the metal floors that would get on my wheels. So that when I got into this place where you're trying to put your best foot forward, so to speak, uh, I have, you know, soda on my hands, you know, that became, the front of those buildings for me and I had never even known that that side of the those buildings were there I mean of course you know that intellectually but you know n- none of those places were really set up for you being seen in your best light
1: so what does that do to you as an actor because that's a, a it's a fragile moment before you audition uh, <laughs> and emotionally I imagine you had to come up with a way to deal with this change in your
2: in your well, life? Well, it teaches you that you're an afterthought. It teaches you that probably, you know, the designers of these buildings and the, you know, stewards of the profession would really not care if you would simply go away. Um, Were you angry? And I was angry, yes. And, and still am at, at, at points, but you try to make it competitive and be like, I'm going to ride up to this casting director's office, basically in a dumpster, and I'm gonna out-act everybody. I don't have the privilege of going to the bathroom beforehand. I don't have the privilege of going to check to see how I look. And I'm gonna be able to, to not, not set that aside to do this audition, but actually incorporate it and funnel it and then speak through it in a way that marries how I'm feeling that day as a human being with what that character is going through in their life. And so you learn to improvise.
1: Weaponize it, it sounds like. I'm thinking you, yeah. you've you been dealing with this for decades now. So have you seen change? I mean, we've heard a lot about uh, Broadway, for instance, becoming more accessible. I think the general public thinks, well, there are rules, laws about accessibility, so it must be pretty good. But my impression is, I don't know.
2: No, I mean, since I've started, yes, the representation has increased. And now it it is still a woeful paucity of representation. I mean, you're talking about the largest minority in the world and the least represented on TV and film and stage. You're talking about one in every four Americans identifies as being disabled. And yet still it's like, well, where are, it's like this Fermi paradox. It's like, well, where is everybody? Where are the wheelchair users on a, in a Super Bowl commercial, or you know, where's the the series regular on the TV show that it's, the wheelchair is not a plot point, you know? Um, and it's getting better. And you know, the the last two theaters I worked at, the long Longacre and the Hudson Theater on Broadway for Macbeth and Dolls House, they bent over backwards to make those those spaces not just accessible, but but fun and accessible, and and gave me a sense of dignity. Um, going to my job i mean for Macbeth, they basically built up a different level for the stage it was all flat for me and then built a dressing room with a shower and a bathroom off stage right because there really wasn't a way for me to get to get downstairs it was so small and so cramped like that's how that's just how those theaters were built back then I remember daniel craig coming into my room going jesus this is bigger than my dresser <laughs> so you know <laughs> that's been a great you moment know for sometimes you. <laughs> sometimes it pays to be disabled but um no i think i th- i think it's it is getting better and i think the next generation is going to have a much easier time than i did um but it needs to get it needs to get far far better it needs to be more disabled writers in writers rooms and uh, disabled showrunners and uh, and not so that we can tell more stories about disability. I don't want to tell stories about disability. Um, I want to tell stories about humanity that just so happened to feature a wheelchair.
1: Yeah. And let's talk about Richard III, uh, which was staged by The Gift, by your theater. And first, tell me about the concept for the production and what prompted it.
2: Well, I would go down to, uh, to then RIC, now the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, just to work out or see what they have, you know, cooking in terms of rehab theory and there was this sort of wild machine called an exoskeleton which it's sort of like a a little bit of a chair that has leg attachments that you sit in strap in and it stands you up and it'll walk you so i started training on this thing and i thought wouldn't it be wild if richard thought you know what i think if i could only get vertical if i can only look like them then they'll love me then they'll then they'll see what they've been ignoring all this time if, if richard himself sort of makes of an ableist fallacy right so we did this production at step garage directed by jessica thebus where our entire second act lights up after intermission our richard standing in this fearsome creepy-looking, insect-like-looking exoskeleton that would make this very kind of like mechanical whine when it would step. And so our, our Richard, you know, started in the wheelchair and ascended into the exoskeleton and literally ended dying on the floor on his knees.
1: What was it like for you, that first performance standing up on stage?
2: wild. I mean, here are these actors in this production, many of whom, uh, many with whom I've acted for over a decade for our entire collaborative vocabulary, they've been towering above me and I've been literally looking up to them. And now I am absolutely dominating them physically. And to feel that, to feel that, you know, and and all the complicated emotions that go with that and that it's powerful. And then why should it feel powerful? Um, It was very complex. It was very complex for me as the actor. And it really brought complexity to that production.
1: Did your Richard change, do you think, being upright and at eye level or or above the rest of the cast? Oh, yeah,
2: I think so. I think so. In what way? well in one way you are different and you know that you're being seen differently by both your friends and also you know your colleagues and at the same time you feel more vulnerable because you're only able to do this by virtue of this brilliant engineering and you're strapped in and all someone has to do is go up to you and kind of give you a, a a moderate shove on your shoulder, and you tip over like Herman Munster. So you feel this weird collision of of of, of a very fragile power of being exposed and also being defiant.
1: Appropriate for a king.
2: Yeah, yeah. and it's it's wild. When that curtain would open. And I would see, you know, subscribers to The Gift or, you know, former directors or teachers, you know, they would look, there was this look of awe and pride, you know? And and I get that. I get it 100% to see someone who kind of almost died twice and who had worked so hard. And at the same time, I'd be like, why are you proud of me now? Because Mm -hmm. I'm standing. And I think like a lot of, The narratives we've seen around disability are like triumph of the human spirit you know when are they going to walk again that doesn't really serve anybody Mm. you know i think the more we can live in context less dramaturgies where walkers or canes or, or or wheelchairs can simply exist unexplained uncontextualized it puts the audience into a, an interesting juncture where they have to decide to spend some mental energy trying to decipher why that person uses a wheelchair or whatever, or just give up and accept it. And I think when that happens, something really beautiful happens and, and humanizing happens in the theater. So I think we need more of that.
1: Thank you so much. This has been so wonderful talking to you. I really enjoy it.
2: Thank you so much. This is a great conversation.
0: That was Michael Patrick Thornton interviewed by Barbara Bogave. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Daniel Roth in Chicago and Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs, Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. Our building in Washington, DC has been under construction for the past three years, but we're looking forward to fully opening our doors again in 2024. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.